Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, today we're exploring the fascinating topic of hot and cold therapy and how it impacts our health. We'll be speaking with two experts in their respective fields who'll provide us with unique insights into the world of temperature therapy. First up, we have Ryan Markham, owner of Markham Works Cedar Saunas, who'll be discussing the benefits of sauna and hot and cold contrast bathing. Ryan will be sharing with us his knowledge on how heat therapy can help with relaxation, pain relief, and general wellness. He'll also explain how alternating between hot and cold can bring about a host of benefits for our physical and our mental health. Now, following our discussion with Ryan, we'll speak with my friend, Dr. John Power, a thermophysiologist from the National Research Council. John will share insights on what happens when cold exposure goes too far, including the dangers of cold shock and hypothermia. This year, I actually tried cold immersion in their lab, and I can tell you, it was very eye-opening what happens to our bodies. Now, John will shed light on the risk that exists when we're out on the ice during the winter in Newfoundland and Labrador and across our country, and how we can stay safe while still enjoying some of our favorite winter activities. So this week's episode is about improving our health with the use of hot and cold therapy, but also recognizing the importance of staying away from cold exposure in its most extreme form. Let's get to our interview with Ryan Markham. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Oh, we've been meaning to get together for a little while. This is a topic I find really interesting. And, you know, you are somebody who has a really interesting background in, in using hot and cold, but also you're a real sauna enthusiast. So we're going to get into that today. You know, tell our listeners a little bit about your past. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town here in Ontario uh, called Midland. And uh, growing up as a kid, uh, my uncle took my cousin and I to the YMCA to play racquetball, learn hand-eye coordination. And uh, we always ended with the sauna. And our, my first uh, opportunity to try sauna, it wasn't a great experience. I was, uh, you know, a little jaded. I thought it was too hot. And it, it took a little bit of educating from my uncle for me to understand the, the benefits of sauna and how to really, to relax our bodies and our mind when stepping into the sauna. So I, I was really lucky to start my sauna journey at an early age. And then as I grew up, uh, I had the opportunity uh, as an athlete to travel the world and see how other countries, you know, use spa and, you know, these, these opportunities for us to uh, slow down and relax and really turn in and, and self-care. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, you know, there is some real physiology behind it all. And I think that's something that we should get into to begin with. One of the things that comes up a lot in athlete training is what's called contrast bathing. So these periods of like hot and cold, you know, can you explain a little bit why that's done and what's going on in the body? There's definitely benefit with it. So the, uh, the heating up our core will open up our pores and therefore when we step outside from the sauna after sweating, our pores will will close. So our, our body really loves this contrast of hot and cold. Yeah, I've heard things like, uh, you know, essentially that you've got increased blood flow going to muscles and things like this. And then you're pushing that blood out when you constrict the blood vessels. And it's this sort of repeat of like almost like pushing new blood in and out of, of different tissues, which, which makes sense, especially if you're trying to heal things, because maybe you've got some damage in a, a specific tissue, you know. Um, you know, when, when you think about it, you were talking about being in a sauna, but can you do this sort of thing for different parts of the body as well? Or do you look more at the global human body as a whole, as opposed to specific areas of it? 
myself personally, I, I do look at the whole body, but I mean, as an athlete, if you have body parts that, you know, are injured, uh, you can, you know, you, if it's an ankle, you can wrap your, your ankle with heat and then flip that to cold. Uh, there's a lot of different uses when flipping from hot and cold. I use the example of sauna, but that could be in a hot tub or really uh, a hot shower. You could really heat up the core and, and it does a lot of benefits for our bodies as athletes. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to you personally, like some of the, you said, you've had lots of experience with this, you know, it has to be good in other ways than just like just the physiology side of things. So it probably helps with injuries, but what other benefits does this sort of approach have? Yeah. So uh, it really helps reduce inflammation. We've talked about this. It really helps me in mental strength with my mental strength, exercising, and then jumping into a sauna uh, and then into the cold. My mental strength, because of this practice, I feel that you know, as a father, when taking on anything stressful with our kids, uh, this is really helping me stay calm through, you know, intense moments. Mm -hmm. uh, other ways that I've found that this supports me is, um, you know, with my breath work, you know, helps support uh, slowing my breath down when my body is under stress. So whether that's through exercise, you know, surfing or biking. Um, and then when I'm Back in the sauna, I find that, you know, I really tune into my breath to be able to take the, the heat. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it's also a bit of a social thing as well, isn't it? It really is. This is one of my favorite parts about sauna is to share with friends and family the opportunity to, you know, disconnect from our technology and, and really just be present. You know, it really brings us to a present moment where I feel in this world that we're, we're missing a lot of that today. Yeah. Well, the other thing that we're missing in particular in Newfoundland and Labrador, where we are, and you were just here for a visit, hence our introduction to one another, but uh, is the weather. You know, like it's awful nice to be somewhere that's warm, right? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, the RDF is no joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it ever? Is it ever? So, so you know, give me a bit of a rundown. So let's talk a little about Sonic, because I know that's really where a lot of your passion lies on this, is that, like, you know, how hot do these things get, and what is it? Like, what defines a sauna? What does it look like? How warm does it get? All the details we may or may not know. Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. I think that uh, that's very personal. You know, myself, I enjoy a really hot sauna. So we're up over 200 uh, and into 210 for a really hot sauna. This doesn't mean that I, you know, practice sauna at those high temperatures every day. I really enjoy just the idea of sweating. And when you get into the sauna at 140 to 160, uh, you can get a sweat roll going. And, you know, for me, I love sweating. And so that to me feels good, whether it's at that lower temp or higher temperatures. But, you know, when we're talking about gathering with friends and family, uh, we typically will sauna at a lower temperature so that it's welcoming for everybody. We do a lot of educating with our friends and family too, for those who are not as experienced with sauna, because, uh, you know, it, it is relatively new for some folks. Yeah, and I guess that's, you know, the, before we get into some more of the, the social sides of it and some of the uses for it, uh, are there any risks for people that you should be conscious of? So if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, this sounds really mm -hmm. great, you know, what what do I, what should people look out for? Yeah, I mean, look, Mike, I'm no doctor, but I, I have learned that, you know, if you're pregnant, if you have, you know, heart problems, you would want to refer to your doctor, your family doctor before, you know, taking on higher temperatures of sauna. 
Mm-hmm. And that makes perfect sense. I think that's sort of the general rule with most things that we're all so unique. And the person that knows us best is our physician or a medical expert who understands people in human physiology. So that's, that's a good point. You know, like, let's talk about just how popular it is. You said that you had the opportunity to travel. And as a result, you know, your exposure that you had as a, as a young person to this sort of made you attuned to what's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. Why is it so popular here in Canada? And, you know, what are some facts of how often it's used? Yeah, I, I would say I'll speak to why it's so popular here in Canada. I would say that, you know, through the 80s, we saw that a lot of homes had a, a sauna in their basement. You know, it's just this little closet in the basement that uh, eventually became just a closet to store stuff because it was a bit of a fad. And I feel that the pandemic, what it's done for a lot of folks here in Canada and North America is people are you know really returning back to what is their health and wellness and what do they need to support being healthy and having a strong immune system and having better mental strength and I think that they're learning that sauna cold cold immersion is a really big plus in you know upping our, our immune system. Uh, there's such folks as you know Wim Hof and you know guys like Joe Rogan and uh, Rhonda Patrick who are you know very familiar with the hot and cold who are you know studying uh, why why we need more of this in our lives. And you know Canada has really taken on to this. I've seen a huge explosion in in the sauna world uh, in in my business, especially, I've been in this business for eight years now of selling sauna and building saunas for folks. And I would say that in the last two to three years that we've seen a huge spike uh, for the popularity. We're here with Ryan Markham, owner of Markham Works Cedar Saunas. He's discussing the benefits of sauna and hot and cold contrast bathing. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Ryan Markham, owner of Markham Works Cedar Saunas, who's discussing the benefits of sauna and hot and cold contrast bathing. Let's get back to the interview. So when it comes to the use of sauna, like it's been used in different parts of the world. Uh, The one, I mean, that we probably relate to the most would be something like the Scandinavian one. But give me a bit of background on how saunas existed throughout the world at different times. Yeah, I mean, if we were to look at Finland, this country has really taken, you know, sauna to a whole other level. Uh, I don't know that they invented sauna. You know, my my research shows that, you know, the indigenous folks were using sweat lodges back in the day. And then, you know, in Turkey, they have a hammam. And so, like, I think that, you know, all of these different cultures are using heat therapy in, in different forms. Now, the Finnish, they had what was called a smoke sauna, where they would... They would uh, light up a fire and they would have hot rocks that would be heated up and they would smoke up this this space. And then they'd open all the doors and windows, let the smoke out. And then they had the, the rocks that were you know, creating this thermal heat. So this is where kind of the beginnings of the Finnish sauna had started. And then they, develop, they continued to develop it and created a, a stove, a wood-fired stove so that you know, it's, you can control the heat, that it's not a smoke sauna now that it, you know, you can actually get in uh, after the temperature has risen and it's just, it's a cleaner space. So Mm -hmm. the Finns, the Finns have millions of saunas over in their country and it is part of their culture because they bathe in the, the, their sauna. They, they gather with their friends and family and, you know, this is, 
this is why, you know, as North Americans, as we've learned about this, uh, that in our country, it's, it's doing the same for us, that it's bringing us together again. Mm, exactly, exactly. Now, when we were chatting before, you gave me an interesting fact about some government officials when it comes to the use of sauna, which I didn't know and I thought was kind of humorous. Yeah, so in Finland, I've learned that the uh, the government officials have a sauna at, uh, you know, in the government agencies where they will go in and for their big decisions for their country, um, they have these conversations in the sauna. When they have you know, visitors from other countries that are coming again to discuss how they can work together as separate countries. Uh, they use the sauna as a space because one, we're stripped of our clothes where, you know, it's just our, our bodies. And so, you know, the great piece about sauna is that, you know, we're all the same. And so because, because we're walking into a space and we're the same, uh, it, it's, it, it takes that ego away and we really focus on being present and and being our authentic self so when it looks at you know the health benefits of it you've mentioned a lot of different things you said you know there's time to disconnect on the social side of things there's an opportunity for us to sweat and kind of cleanse our bodies in a lot of ways but is there any other research out there when it comes to health risks and the benefits of this um i have done uh, a lot of research on this and you know Women, for example, I'll give seven benefits for women's health about sauna. Uh, improved circulation, lower blood pressure, stress relief, the, their skin glows, uh, reduced joint stiffness and muscle soreness, stronger immune system, and a better mood. Mm. So these are seven benefits that you know I, I researched about women, uh, and this is this is all very good stuff. So another benefit, you know, is that this is really relaxing. Uh, when I think relaxing, automatically sleep comes to mind. Does it impact our sleep in any way? Yeah, absolutely. I think I have my best sleeps after a sauna. Uh, you know, I wake up in the morning refreshed and I sleep right through the night. I don't have a problem sleeping anyways, but I, you know, I do have friends that, that I ski and surf with that have had problems sleeping. And when they do step into the sauna and have a sweat and put our bodies through this good stress, that they just have a better rest, better sleep. Uh, it helps us to relax and it eases lower back pain. For example, uh, I went to lift something the other day and you know, kind of pulled something in my back. I went to my chiropractor, he made an adjustment. I went home, I lit the sauna and I had a sweat. And I think after I, I raised my body temperature, um, I went outside, I held the top of the barrel sauna and stretched my back out. So I did a bit of traction. And, and then I, I felt that relief where I didn't have compression in my back again. But, you know, I do believe that, you know, sauna helps warm the core up in order for us to get those, some of these aches and pains out of our body. And as I, you know, you're an athlete as well, Mike, and I'm sure that, you know, at times with our aches and pains, uh, you know, we, we take that on as like, oh my God, I, I hope I'm going to be okay uh, soon. I've got you know, an event coming up or, you know, I was planning an adventure and, but, you know, we really need to believe that our bodies are made up to repair and repair itself and sauna and cold and, you know, jumping in a hot tub. These are all supporting pieces for me as an athlete that, you know, I, re I, I rely heavily on to keep my body tuned and, and capable. 
I love that. And you know what's so funny about what you just said about being an athlete is that, yes, I was an athlete, competitive athlete, probably like almost 25 years ago, but still think of myself that way. But because I was an athlete, I do value these types of modalities that make you feel so much better. And for anybody listening, I mean, every single time you go to a physiotherapist, chiropractor, anybody who's trying to make you relax and de deal with those stiff muscles, they're always putting heat pads on you. And this is just another mm -hmm. another means of it. So if it's safe for you and you, you, know, you, you feel like that's something you want to try, I highly recommend it. Always trying something new in particular when we think about why we all go down to places like florida to get warm it's because you know maybe we can have a little bit of that back home you know ryan as we start to wrap up here is there anything you want to leave folks with when it comes to your message about you know how this may be able to help yeah mike you know what really comes to mind is this trip out to newfoundland learning about the landscape learning about the people and you know it's a slower way of life out there i really feel that you know, something that I didn't see a whole lot of out there was sauna. And I feel that it that what it can do for your day is it takes that, you know, rain, drizzle, fog day, and it turns it into a great day. Like, you know, if you think about this, if we woke up in the morning, it's, you know, uh, the ceiling is low, there's overcast and fog. But if we have a sauna on our property, we go like that sauna, we've got something to look forward to for that day. And I'll tell you, when you get in that sauna, and you walk back out into Mother Nature when you have those conditions, you know what? You embrace that weather now. You're not, you're not like resisting it. And I feel that, you know, it it just makes us feel really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like warming up our car in the morning before we got to get facing the day. That's a, that's a great point. Ryan, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I'm really glad you could join us for the talk today. It was, I found it really interesting. Thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate you having me. That's Ryan Markham, owner of Markham Works Cedar Saunas. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. John Power. He's a thermophysiologist from the National Research Council, and he'll share the dangers of cold shock and hypothermia if we ever have the unfortunate circumstances of falling through the ice during those outdoor activities. It's an important message for anybody who spends time outside on the ice in the winter. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. John Power. He's a thermophysiologist in the National Research Council. Dr. Power is sharing insights on what happens when cold exposure goes too far, including cold shock and hypothermia. Let's get back to the interview. Hey, Dr. Power, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me again. And we've known each other long enough. You don't <laughs> need to be so formal with me. Yeah, the formality of radio doesn't uh, doesn't really explain the relationship. We've known each other for almost 20 years, gone to grad school together, and uh, you've got on to some pretty interesting stuff, which is what we're going to talk about today. I find it fascinating. Um, you're what's called a thermophysiologist, so maybe you can explain to our listeners what that is. Right. So my background and the area of research that I've been in is I've been looking at how humans respond to either very hot or very cold temperatures and how the body responds to that and then how those responses can impact both their safety and if somebody may uh, suffer a fatality or not. Now, you know, um, you have been looking at a really cool aspect of this with your research. Some people have uh, write papers and you get to go in a lab with all sorts of high tech stuff, the National Research Council. Uh, talk about some of the activities you guys have there for research. So. 
our uh, our facility, I, I like to say that our facility is one of the best kept secrets in St. John's because we have some absolutely amazing facilities in our way. We have um, our facilities include wave tanks, ice tanks, our thermal lab and our and our thermal mannequin. So what we do in our way is we use these envir- uh, these facilities to recreate realistic environments and being able to test things in realistic environments to be able to determine what their performance actually would be. So when I say realistic environments, I mean things like waves, wind, freezing temperatures, things like this, stuff that we would commonly find offshore Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. And so in my own area of research, I'm in marine safety. Mm -hmm. I look at how the performance of life-saving appliances, such as immersion suits, lifeboats, life rafts, how they perform when we test them in these realistic environments. Cool. That's amazing stuff. It's really interesting work and it's super relevant to what we're doing, which is probably why we have a world-class research center here. You know, that that's extremely important when we think about, you know, places like Newfoundland and Labrador, which has some of the coldest water in the world. But when we think about like ice and from a wellness perspective, I always think about, you know, coming from athletic therapy background, people, you know, cold is good for us in a lot of ways when we have an ache or a pain or an injury, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And people, a lot of times use cold to help reduce inflammation or swelling. And that's traditionally what we use it for. We roll our ankle, we sprain something. The first thing we'll do, we'll put an ice pack on it. It reduces blood flow to the area, causes the swelling to go down and certainly makes it feel more comfortable. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I, I remember like this year, though, we wanted to sort of take that past that increase my understanding of it. Uh, and I got a chance to go and do a cold immersion, which I had to get a medical for, by the way. And maybe you can explain why that's so important. But that was like one of the coldest things in my life. I went into what, five degree or, or so water. We'll say it's lower for the sake of exaggeration, but it was cold <laughs> as hell. And um And, you know, but that's a very real thing. We did that because cold exposure and cold water exposure in Newfoundland is really uh, relevant. Think about snowmobiling, people ice fishing. Um, Why is that a risk and how big of a risk is it in Canada? That's all great points, Mike. And uh, you are right. It is a very big risk. And the reason for why it's a big risk is people oftentimes when they associate injuries or fatalities with cold water, the first thing we always go to is hypothermia. Mm -hmm. We think that a person got immersed in cold water, their body temperature dropped too low, and they perished from that. But the real reason why it's so deadly and why you had to get a medical before we did that absolutely fantastic cold water immersion (laughs) at our facility was because of the different kinds of responses that happened to the body as soon as it falls into cold water. So when we immediately fall into cold water, we have something, we develop something called the cold shock response. And it is a physiological reflex to being immersed in cold water. So what ends up happening is as soon as you become immersed in cold water, wearing very little protection, like say normal street clothing, um, the water makes contact with your skin and your skin temperature begins to drop. In the skin are thermoreceptors or special nerves that are able to sense changes in temperature. When these nerves are stimulated due to the drop in in skin temperature, they send signals to your brain. And then your brain then sends signals back down to your body to initiate various physiological responses. And some of those responses include a large involuntary gasp. I'm sure we've all kind of experienced this when we're in the shower and all of a sudden the hot water runs out and we get a blast of cold water on the chest. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing that happens? 
Yeah, you right. gasp. <gasps> you, you gasp. Exactly. And then that's followed by hyperventilation or increased breathing. So this is what makes the cold shock response so deadly is when we fall into cold water because we take a large involuntary gasp and we're not able to control our breathing due to the hyperventilation, we actually increase our risk of drowning. Mm. So you fall in the water, you start, you have that large involuntary gasp, you hyperventilate, you inhale water and you actually drown. Mm. Yeah. And then there's a second component that can actually pose a risk to people who have pre-existing uh, cardiovascular conditions. So when you fall into the cold water, uh, your body registers this through the thermoreceptors, sends signals to your brain. In a defense mechanism, your body begins to close down the blood vessels that are going to your hands, your feet, and to the surface of your skin. Because what it wants to do, it wants to keep all that warm blood in your core because it wants to be able to protect your heart, your lungs, your liver, because you need those things to survive versus, you know, you can lose a finger or two uh, if, due to the cold. Mm -hmm. So then as the blood vessels constrict and get narrower, your heart is now trying to pump blood through a smaller opening. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, another natural thing that happens is your heart rate increases. So now what you have is you have an increase in heart, your heart is beating faster and it's trying to push blood through a smaller opening. So if you have pre-existing cardiovascular conditions, this can put a level of strain on the heart that could result in those cardiovascular uh, conditions being exacerbated and possibly leading to death. Yeah, yeah, and, and so we can walk right through this whole experiment that we did because you wanted to see whether or not that blood was gonna rush from my extremities into my core. So you actually gave me a little metal pill. Explain that so that people listening, you gotta get an idea. Like I'm like going into this lab, I had to get this medical with a doctor to make sure I'm not gonna have a heart attack. I walk in there, this thing's freezing cold. There's a mechanical dummy on the bench next to me and you give me a metal pill and say, swallow this. They gave me a wristband so I wouldn't get an MRI so it wouldn't come through me like a bullet in case the magnets were on me. So a little, a little intimidating. Tell me about what, why you gave me that thing. So what we do whenever we do these kinds of, of cold water tests as a, as a safety precaution, we want to make sure that you don't develop hypothermia, which is defined as a drop in deep body or core temperature below 35 degrees Celsius. So myself and you right here now, we're operating at around 37 degrees Celsius. That's our, our deep body temperature. So when we, when we brought you in to do the test, we needed a way to be able to measure your deep body temperature. And there's several different methods which can be used to measure deep body temperature. And some are tolerated by people better than, than others. And so the method that we use at NRC is called a gastrointestinal pill. So what we do is, as you saw, we, we provided you with this pill. And in the pill was a tiny thermometer. And this thermometer measured your deep body temperature. And then it wirelessly transmitted that information to an external logger that we were able to then view your temperature in real time. So we did this, we, we normally do this for safety reasons to make sure nobody develops hypothermia. And if they do develop hypothermia, we will pull them out and begin the rewarming procedure. Um, so we wanted to make sure that you weren't going to develop hypothermia. But I also did it to be able to kind of show an interesting phenomenon when people are suddenly immersed in cold water. And that is in the first few minutes of being immersed in cold water, your deep body temperature actually rises. Mm -hmm. So in, you can internally become warmer than before you got into cold water. And I know that sounds like a bit 
paradoxical, but the reason for that is going back to those cardiovascular responses that I talked about when you got immersed in cold water. So in those initial few minutes, there's this fascinating thing that happens with the body where the blood vessels constrict. So with less blood going through the surface of the skin in the extremities, you're actually increasing your natural insulation. And at the same time, as you, you saw and you experienced, you begin to shiver. So in those first few minutes, what you have happening is you have an increase in your own natural insulation and an increase in your heat production due to shivering. And this actually causes the deep body temperature to slightly rise upon being immersed in cold water. Well, I'll tell you one thing. It sure didn't feel like I was getting warmer because when I went in there, it was and it was a little freaky because I understand physiology. I understand the human body is a machine and it acts in predictable ways. However, I was so predictable of what happened and I knew what was supposed to happen to me that I could have easily like either acted or pretended or whatever, but I didn't. I got in there and the second I hit the water, I had a massive gasp and then I started to hyperventilate and you were literally coaching me along saying, okay, this is going to end here. And, and, and that, is that like, you know, that's, that's, that's something that's characteristic of all human beings. And why is that? Is there a reason why we have this sort of gasp reflex? That's an excellent, excellent question. And the reason why it is so, um, I, I guess we see this across all different kinds of people when they're immersed, regardless of their body type is, it goes back to what I was saying about the thermoreceptors on the surface of the skin. And that's the key point. It's the surface of the skin. So it doesn't matter how much uh, body fat you may have. It's as soon as the surface of the skin cools, that's when those signals are sent to the brain and we get these physiological responses. So I know we sometimes can make the joke that, you know, people, um, you know, some people might take longer to cool because they're larger than others. But when it comes to the cold shock response, because what drives it is on the surface of the skin, it doesn't matter how big you are, we're all going to experience it. We're here with Dr. John Power. He's a thermophysiologist in the National Research Council. He's sharing what happens when cold exposure goes too far, including the danger associated with cold shock and hypothermia. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. John Power. He's a thermophysiologist in the National Research Council. Dr. Power is sharing insights on what happens when cold exposure goes too far, including cold shock and hypothermia. Let's get back to the interview. A lot of the time people are like, I'm, I can handle it. I'm good and cold and stuff like this. This is why having gear is so important for this because less skin is exposed. It's it's adding additional insulation, it's protecting you. So like when somebody goes out, you know, this is sort of a safety thing. I still want to get into swim failure and some of these other things I experienced because they were just unbelievable. But like how important is that gear going to be for somebody when they go out there on the ice? It is hugely important. And the reason for this is, is because it's a reflexive response, the cold shock response, which means you're not going to be able to control it. So ideally, if you are around cold water, you would want to have good fitting gear that would prevent the water from making contact with your skin. Now, I fully recognize that that's not always possible if you're out skidooing or hunting or whatever have you. No one's going to be in a full dry suit all the time. But if you're ever around cold water, be it it's uh, it's open water or ice covered water, at the minimum, you should have a life jacket on. 
And the reason for that is when you hit the water and the life jacket deploys exactly, it helps keep your head above the surface of the water so that you're not sucking in water while you're hyperventilating, while you have that large involuntary gasp. So it prevents you from drowning. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge point. I think that's important for people listening. The ice is forming now. It's late this year, but it's still there. You know, up north in Labrador, it's been around for a while. So just, you know, understanding that aspect is important no matter how good you are and how ready you are for it. You cannot control it. I can say that from personal experience. I had zero control of my body. So then you said I started shivering. So I start shivering. Makes That makes sense. I mean, I'm used to shivering when you get cold. But the thing that really started to get me was I started to lose control of my fingers. I lost complete control of my fingers. I couldn't grab onto anything if my life depended on it, literally, which is called swim failure. Tell me about what was going on physiologically then. You're right. And so this is the next stage of cold water immersion. So this usually occurs, say, about two minutes after being immersed in cold water. And as you said, it's caused, it's, excuse me, it's called swim failure. And so what ends up happening is due to that vasoconstrictive response, the blood vessels are shutting down or are constricting, excuse me, redirecting warm blood to the core. We now have muscles that are simultaneously shivering, so they're active, they're, they're generating heat, but we don't have fresh blood moving through them to be able to wash all those metabolic byproducts out. So that results in cramping. And then at the same time, when nerve endings start to cool, we lose our sensation of touch. We lose our ability to, to, uh, to, to grip things very hard because we're losing that, uh, the, the, the uh, we'll, we'll redo this one. <laughs> okay, no, just, just keep on, Just use the word dexterity. We'll lose the dexterity. I can tape that in, no problem. Just yeah, good. We'll lose. We'll lose the dexterity because our nerves are cooling and our muscles aren't functioning correctly now at this point because of the reduction in blood flow. And then at the same time, we all have fluid in our joints, synovial fluid. And then as that cools, that begins to thicken. And so it's even harder to be able to kind of open and close our hand because now our joints are starting to thicken up and becoming uh, there's more resistance when we try to open or close them. And so trying to do all of this while at the same time, your body is involuntarily shivering. So you're not able to perform any kind of coordinated movement like reach your hand out, grab hold of something, maybe put a glove on, or try to don a life jacket in the water. You lose that degree of coordination as well. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you said it right. So then maybe we bring it back to the whole point. You have a pill inside of me at this point when I'm going through this thing. I have now lost dexterity in my hand. I'm having trouble breathing. I'm wearing street clothes because we wanted to do the experiment as if I fell into the water not being prepared. Um, what happened to my core temperature? Because I know at this point, I probably would have drowned if I didn't have a life jacket on and I couldn't have grabbed onto something. So was I, was I, did I have a risk of dying of the cold itself, like as in like hypothermia at this point? No, not at all. And that's the amazing thing. It is not possible to develop hypothermia in under 20 minutes if you fall into water as cold as two degrees Celsius. And the simple reason for that is it takes time for the cold to basically go from the outside and reach all the way to your core and begin drawing heat out of your core. That process takes time. Hmm. So let's talk about what hypothermia is then, because I feel like a lot of people think, oh, it's cold water, it's hypothermia. You know, what are the risks of that? And then, you know, if somebody is exposed to cold for a long period of time, we, maybe we can get into some practical stuff afterwards about how they get themselves out of that state. But first of all, like, 
you know, when you're exposed to cold for a long time, you, you basically summarize a little bit, said hypothermia is when it starts to really get inside you. But what, what's the technical definition of it? So the technical definition of hypothermia is when your deep body temperature drops below 35 degrees Celsius. Right. Okay. And so when we take our temperature, when we got a cold, it's because our temperature is high. So we're in a fever state. This is when it starts to get low. And so why is it a big deal if our core temperature drops down low? So what ends up happening is as our core temperature begins to drop, we suffer other physiological um, responses due to this. So you have a cooling of all the muscle fibers deep in your in your core. And what can happen in, when you drop to about 28 degrees Celsius is the muscles around your heart begin to misfire. Again, going back to the example we talked about with regards to the cooling of nerves, the reduction of blood supply to muscles, when it comes down to 28 degrees Celsius in your heart, the same thing can happen into your heart muscles. So you can actually have, excuse me, you can actually have uh, ventricular fibrillation with your heart and you can die from that. But then at that, but then as well, before you even get to 28 degrees Celsius, you can lose consciousness. And so if you're in cold water and you lose consciousness and you don't have a life jacket, then that has significantly increased your risk of drowning. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So there you go. So if somebody is starting to get to this stage and they may not be at this 28 degrees Celsius where their heart, which is, you know, a muscle that never stops beating from like the third week of gestation to all the way to the last beat we have in life, uh, you know, starts to shut down. What are the symptoms people can look out for if they've had cold exposure? So interestingly, um, there's there's quite a few symptoms and there's the traditional ones we see. We see the we see the shivering, the the paleness. Uh, the loss of sensation and things like and things like this, but when you start getting severe hypothermia, uh, so this is past thirty five to you've, you've fallen past thirty five degrees. Um, there's actually some really interesting signs, and one of them is apathy. So it has been re- it has been documented that in survivors who have been picked up after a shipwreck and things like that, there are people who are who are stranded and the rescuers come and the people are not interested in being rescued. They've become very withdrawn and apathetic. They didn't care that rescue was there to get them. And this is actually one of the signs of hypothermia. Yeah, it is this this withdrawn nature, this apathetic response to being to being saved and then another interesting phenomenon it too is you can actually stop shivering if you get too cold Mm. that's another that's another sign so if you ever do encounter somebody who is very cold obviously cold cold to the touch but they are not shivering that is a very bad sign and that's usually a sign they have severe hypothermia yeah, I remember watching the Mythbusters episode where the buys wanted to see whether or not having a sip of whiskey keeps them warmer. And then they used thermal cameras on them and they saw that because it caused their skin to get flushed, they cooled quicker, but they didn't notice how cold they were getting yep. and it got dangerous. They had to pull them out of there because the, they, they were standing to develop a form of hypothermia. Um, so if somebody does get cooled off to this point, do we just throw them in a tub or something like this to try and heat them up? Because I've heard that if you warm somebody the wrong way, that can be bad for them too. This is this is true. So there's different levels of rewarming that we can do depending on how hypothermic an individual is. So like in your case, when you came in and you did uh, you did the test, you were not hypothermic. So we knew that the best way to rewarm you was 40 degrees Celsius water, which just so happens to be the maximum temperature setting on hot tubs. <laughs> yeah. So we had the hot tub for you. We put you in there and it felt great. 
when you start getting into severe hypothermia, you have to do a more gradual rewarming of, of the body. So you have to allow things, you have to allow the heat to kind of slowly come in and slowly bring the body temperature back up. And that's for severely hypothermic individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that makes perfect sense. I've, uh, I've, I've heard that, like, you know, even things like, is it true that you'd put like hands and feet in water and things like that to warm the peripheries first or things like that? Or obviously I guess, let me just re-ask that. Say, uh, I'm going to rephrase that whole thing. So, so yeah. So obviously where there's such a risk, the, the best thing to do is leave it to professionals, get medical treatment for this, of course. Right. Correct. Exactly. That is, that is the best thing to do because there's actually uh, another phenomenon uh, in the stages of cold water immersion. This is the last stage. It's called post-rescue collapse. And this is this is a very interesting phenomenon where people are actually retrieved from the water, brought on board the rescue vessel, and then they die. Mm. And amazingly, they're still not 100% certain over what the actual mechanisms are that can cause this. And there are, there are they, they know there are certain things that cause it. Like for example, if you've been immersed in the water for 30 minutes to an hour, you've had all that water pressing in against your skin, your blood pressure changes. And then all of a sudden, if you were just pulled vertically from the water, your blood pressure can crash. Then there's been other times, depending on how they're put in the boat, if they're put on in the boat in an angle and they start uh, moving forward, all the blood can pool to the bottom of their feet. That can cause another crash. And interestingly too, there's also been cases where people have been fighting for, for hours for survival and then they've been rescued and they bring them up into the rescue boat, the helicopter, whatever have you. And then the, the, the Sartex say to them, you know, it's okay. You're fine. Now you've been rescued. And then people just kind of, they have this sense of relief. They stop fighting and they just kind of pass away. Wow. And it's they, they've kind of stopped fighting. And so it's even recommended now that even when you pull people up into the boat and and you're rescuing them, it's important to tell people you have to keep fighting like you're you're not home free yet. Like, you know, stay awake, keep going. We're we're 20 minutes from the hospital, but, you know, you're not out of the woods just yet. Yeah. And that's, that's important. And, you know, and that's, that's, I guess, something that we can take home right now. So if somebody is listening to this and we've talked about, you know, sudden cold water immersion, we've talked about being in there for a long period of time, what are the sort of uh, key takeaways for safety that you would tell people that are listening today? So one of the things that I would, I would definitely recommend uh, again is probably when you're extracting somebody from the water and, and I recognize this could be an emergency situation and it stuff is never ideal or perfectly planned. Uh, but when you're extracting somebody from the water, try to bring them out in a horizontal position. Mm. Again, it's, it's the idea there is if you're bringing them out in a horizontal fashion, all the blood isn't going to simply just crash to the bottom of their feet. If you bring them out, if you kind of roll them out horizontally, it allows the blood, to, uh, the, the blood pressure to be, um, Sorry, let me let me back that up. That's if good. you roll, if you roll somebody out horizontally, uh, it'll allow it's much easier for the body to be able to keep blood pumping around. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The thing is, there is training for this. One of my friends, Renee, uh, looks at cold water rescue, and and that's a whole skill set in itself. But the nice thing is, we know that we've got some some experts there to be able to save us in those situations. But hopefully, we avoid the situations altogether. John, thank you so much for joining me today, and I really appreciate your insights. It's good to see you, and it's good to see you without having to jump into a freezing cold <laughs> thing of water. Mike, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, it's always great being able to work with you. Thank you to my guests for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed our discussions with Ryan and Dr. Power and gained a deeper understanding of how temperature therapy can impact our health. 
From our conversation with Ryan, we learned about the health benefits of sauna and hot and cold contrast bathing and that these impacts are vast and varied. Heat therapy can help us relax, alleviate pain, reduce inflammation, and improve our overall well-being. And alternating between hot and cold temperatures can also help with blood circulation, immune system function, and stress reduction. However, it is important to be aware of the risks associated with cold exposure in its most extreme form. And Dr. John Powers shared with us the dangers of cold shock and hypothermia and how we can stay safe while participating in winter activities in Newfoundland and Labrador and across the country. So thank you for tuning in today, and I hope you learned something new. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.